I'm going to start in, in verse 18. We went over the background of the story, which is Abram. His name is still Abram. It hasn't been changed to Abraham yet. His, his nephew Lot is living in a city of, of Sodom and the sister city of Gomorrah. And what's happened is a king who has oppressed them for 12 years, uh, they rebelled against. And he has come down to punish them with other armies. And the word, and he's come down and he takes the entire city of Sodom and the entire city of Gomorrah off into captivity and leaves the kings there. And word gets to Abram that in this process that his nephew Lot and his family has been taken with them. And I never saw this until last week when we were going through this. But Abram takes with him, let's see, he took with him 318 trained servants born in his house against a mighty army that these two cities couldn't withstand. 318 men. He takes them up and he conquers Chedorlaomer and he brings back all that he'd stolen and returns it to Sodom and to Gomorrah. And as he's done this, as he's bringing this back, we go into this scene and he's approached by a man in the Bible called Melchizedek who appears here and in the book of Hebrews. The name Melchizedek is, in itself means king of righteousness and he is identified as the king of Salem. So his name and his title means king of righteousness and king of shalom, which is peace. And as I shared with you last week, I believe that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Christ. He's identified as the priest of the Most High, of God Most High. And that's important in our understanding today. Because that name Elion means the Most High, above everything else. Whatever you can think of, whatever you can make, whatever you can know of, He is the Most High God. There are many people that are high and mighty, but He's the Most High, and He's God. Important. And this Melchizedek, verse 19, says, And He blessed him, and said, This is Melchizedek blessing Abram. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So we saw last week that Abram was receiving from this priest who represents Christ a revelation of who God is in his life. Understand that Abram grew up in a city called Ur in Chaldea, which is basically where Iraq is today. He grew up in a heathen nation that worshipped the moon. In chapter 12, God appears to him and begins to reveal himself to him. And if you study Abram's life, you've got to understand it's a process that he goes through. Just as God takes us through a process of revealing who he is. It's a lifelong process. And it will go as fast, how fast it goes is really up to you how much time you spend seeking him. And so God begins to reveal who he is to Abram and he uses terms which we can't go into this morning but imply a covenant that Abram would have understood. And now his next exposure is in this experience where uh, uh, an appearance of of the priest representing Christ who represents God appears to him and, and says, I have come on behalf of God, the Most High God, to bless you. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So he's revealing several things to Abram that this God that has approached him is the Most High God. Higher than the moon, higher than the sun, higher than any other God that Abram has ever heard of. Of course, there's only one God, but he's the most high God. He is the possessor of heaven and earth, and he is the one that takes care of you. He's the one that has protected you and blessed you and delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram's response was, 
and he gave a tithe or a tenth of all. Of all what? Of all that God had delivered into his hands, he took a tenth of it and he gave it to this priest, to Melchizedek. And he gave the king of Sodom, and and now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and take the goods for yourselves. In other words, I've lost everything. I now realize what's really important in life. And we shared that last week. That in in the life that most of us live, although you may complain about what you don't have, you've got far more than most people and other places in the earth have. And when you either lose the things you have, or you go somewhere where they don't have what you have, and you find out they're happier than you are, you realize you don't need stuff to be happy. And what happened to this king is he realized what was really important wasn't the things that he had, it was the people, the relationships. So he said to Abraham, you keep the stuff, I just want my people back. And Abraham's response shows his heart. Abram, verse 22, said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and I will take nothing from a thread of your sandals to a thread from a thread to your sandal strap that I will take anything that's yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. So we began to talk last week about the tithe and why this is so important. And we're going to continue today with a second aspect of it, we're going to talk about the principle that's behind the tithe and what's involved in it. Because I believe with all my heart that when people have understanding, when people, because a lot of times we're just told do something, we're not given an understanding of what it means, what's behind it, and we need to obey God anyway. But it helps when you have understanding as to why we do this. But before we got into that, we talked last week of some attitudes about the tithe and attitudes about money. And I just want to quickly touch on them because some of you may not have been here and sometimes we need to be reminded of these things. So some people have a problem with talking about money in church, except when we go complain to our brothers we don't have enough. And yet Jesus talked a lot about money. The Bible talks a lot about money. We saw in Mark chapter 12, Jesus sat and he watched people give their offerings. Some people say, well, it's my business, it's between God and me, and yet the Bible talks very openly about what we give and what we should give and the attitude with which we give. Some people see tithing as <laughs> what it costs to be a Christian. It's the, it's the, it's just, you know, tomorrow's April 15th, so many of us have taxes on our mind, so we wouldn't put it this way, but we kind of see it as the, as the tax for being a Christian. If I'm going to be a good Christian, I've got to pay 10% of, 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 of my income. I got to do it. That's the wrong. Then don't do it, because that's, right. that's not a tithe. That's right. <laughs> it's not a tax. It's a giving of something. We're going to talk about whether this is in the old, it's, it's just in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that down the road. Some people have the attitude that tithing's forced upon us. In the New Testament, we've been set free, and and we don't have to do anything. We're, we've been set free. Well, you're going to learn when we get into the New Testament that you'd rather go back to the Old Testament. Because in the New Testament, everything belongs to God. Actually, it did in the Old Testament too. The New Testament says we were bought with a price. Don't you know you're not your own? Well, wait a minute. If I'm not my own, how come in the money I have be my own? So what we'll discover in the New Testament, it all belongs to God. He just asks for a tenth. You get to keep 90%. That's the way to look at it. But we'll get into the heart today of what's behind this. All right. And then some people think it's too much, it's unreasonable. We'll talk about that. And many are afraid of it. I can't afford to do that. And when you end up understanding, I believe that we'll see why. So we're going to begin to talk today about now about um, the principle that's behind the tithe. Okay. So there are three things in this scripture. This is what we're starting today. There's three things in this scripture that this priest is revealing to Abram about God. First of all, he needed to know that this God was the most high God, higher than everything else. Secondly, this most high God owned everything. 
heaven and earth. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And the third thing is he is your source and your protection. So what we're going to begin to do is to look at the principle that's behind the tithe. And it has a purpose to it. And there are four of them that we're going to look at today. There are four things that the tithe is designed to not just teach us, but to train us. There's a difference between teaching and training. What we're going through now is teaching. Teaching is imparting information. It's giving understanding of what something is, what it means, and why we do it. But you can get all the understanding in the world, you can get all the information in the world, but if you don't learn how to apply it in your life, it will do you no good at all. We need the teaching, and we need the understanding. So teaching and understanding imparts information, it imparts understanding. But training helps us learn how to apply it in our life. Those of you who have ever been in the military, they didn't start you out by putting a gun in your hand or putting you behind, behind the pilot seat of a jet fighter or they didn't put you in charge of some aircraft carrier. They sent everybody, no matter how well educated you were, no matter whether your father was a, was a, was a rear admiral or chief of staff of the, of the armed forces, didn't matter who you are, you all start the same place. Basic training. Oh, it's not basic teaching, is it? It's basic training. And there's a message in that. The message is we didn't bring you here to give you information. We brought you here to change your behavior patterns. And it starts with a wake-up call. Somewhere around 5 a.m., you find out you can't get out of bed when you want to. In fact, it begins to dawn on you, you can't do anything that you want to anymore just because you want to. You now have to do what they tell you to do or else. And that's the most basic part of the training there is. To get across the message that you're not your own. Oh, my goodness. We have to have a revelation We're not our own. Someone else has rights over us. And that's what basic training is primarily designed to do, is to train you to do what you're told to do when you're told to do it. Because out in the field of battle is not the place to have a debate with your sergeant about whether you want to go take that fox hill or not. It's not a place to have a discussion about how we're going to do things or not. It's a place for instant obedience because a delay may cost people their lives. How much more in the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in right now? So training is to help us through exercises to learn to apply the things we learn in our life and develop the, oh, I hate this word, discipline to do it. And most of us, if not all of us, need help with that. And training gives you the help. Now, you can choose to receive the training or to resist the training. And we're going to look this morning at a people that were given the opportunity to be trained by God so that he could bless them and they resisted the training and they missed the blessing. So that's what this is about. We're going to learn the principles that are behind tithing because they're intended to teach us certain lessons. Not These are lessons that if we passed around a piece of paper right now and I asked you these four questions, I guarantee you that at least 95% of you would get the right answer. You know the information. We're not going to hear anything today you've not heard before. But most of us haven't applied it in our life. And the lesson that we're going to learn today, the principle behind tithing, is to help us ingrain it 
in our life, which is where the blessing is. All right. That's what we mean by the principle of tithing, is to understand the purpose of the tithe in our life. It's not just to raise money. God can raise money. The purpose of it is to do something for you. Shared last week, we're not doing this because the church is having financial trouble. The church is doing very well, thank you. Thank God, actually, but thank you too. But we're teaching this because we need to know this. Some of you out there need to know this because you've never heard this before. You just hear you're supposed to tithe, but you don't know why. But there are many of you out there that understand tithing. You've been tithing for years, but we need to be reminded of why we need to tithe. Some people start slipping back, but many of us are doing it, but we forget why. We just do it out of habit. We talked about that last week. We become what I call bucket plunkers. Plunk the tithe in the bucket as it goes by instead of worshiping God with it. There's a difference. And so while I I pay my tithes, no, we worship God with our tithes. I pay my taxes yesterday, but I worship God. I bring my tithes. There's a difference, complete difference of attitude. The money may end up in the same place, but it's not about the money. It's about the heart. All right. First principle. First principle that's behind the tithe. Genesis, this is, this everyone can find. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's so simple, I have it memorized. But I'll read it. In the beginning, we've talked about this on Wednesday nights before, the beginning of what? The beginning of, the crea- the beginning of this realm of existence, the material realm of existence, and all the universe that's part of it. In the beginning, a committee got together and planned, hired an architect, oh, In the beginning was a big bang. (laughs) Well, there may have been. But the Bible says what God said happened is in the beginning, God. That's so profound. In the beginning, God. (laughs) Created. You can only link the word create with God. Because only God can create. Create means you take nothing and turn it into something. All we can do, all the the best minds, the geniuses, all the most skilled engineers and, and, and chemists, all they can do is take something that God's already created and mix it with something else that God has already created and either cause a chemical reaction, which God created, or redesign it or reshape it or combine them together all through energy and skill that God created. Everything in the process comes from something God created. So all we've learned to do is to take the materials that God created and with the wisdom God gave us, restructure it. That's all we've been able to do. But human nature is such, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, that we forget where it came from and we look at the things that we have done with what God given us and we start admiring the great work we did. Wow. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Well, we can't go back and look there today, but there's somebody in the Old Testament that the Bible talks about that did the same thing in the beginning. His name was Lucifer, who was also God's creation, the most beautiful God ever created. And he began to look at God's creation and forget that it was God that created him and began to think how wonderful he was 
And that same temptation is what each of us have to deal with today. So the first principle of the tithe is to understand that of who God is. That He is the creator of all. Go with me now to Hebrews chapter 11. There are many scriptures we could use here, but I, I don't want to get into them all because there's somewhere we need to go today. Verse 3. By faith, we understand, not by courses in physics, not by microscopes and telescopes and all the other scopes, By faith we understand that the worlds, that's the universe, was framed by the Word of God. The word frame means to arrange, set in order, complete what is lacking, to complete. So that the things which are seen, the things which our senses can detect, were not made out of things which were visible. In other words, what I just said. God took nothing and made it into something. That's what create means. This is so simple and basic, but we overlook this. God is the creator of all. There's nothing... In fact, if you go into John chapter 1, it talks about He created it through Christ. And He says... All things were made by Him and through Him and for Him. All things, whether in heaven or on earth. Now, heaven's not where God lives. Heaven is the spiritual atmosphere around this this universe. So the first thing is God is the creator of everything. No one else has ever created anything, including Satan, because Satan is His creation. He didn't create Him as Satan, but he was created by him as Lucifer. Number two, first thing is, God is the creator of all. Number two, God owns everything because he created them. Principle of ownership. Where does ownership ever come? Ever wonder where, you know, if you go buy a new car, they have to give you something called a title, which is the government's evidence of who owns it. And so the last thing they'll do is they'll take your title and they'll, register, they'll, they'll, they'll transfer the title from the dealership to you if you buy it. And then they give you the keys. Or now you stuff, stuff you can carry around in your pocket. Well, where does that ownership come from? I ask these kind of questions. Not to them, but in my own head. Well, the dealer owns it because they bought it from the manufacturer. Ford Motor Company or Buick or whatever it is. Where did they get it from? Where did Ford Motor Company get the ownership of that Ford Edge or whatever it is? They made it. So ownership starts with the one that created it. Right? If I make something, of course we know I can't create anything. But what they did is they made the car by taking other things, putting them together, and it comes off the assembly line, and Ford Motor Company owns that Ford Edge or whatever it is because they made it. And they don't want to own them. They want to make money off of them, so they transfer the ownership and the car to the dealer. The dealer doesn't want them sitting around. They bought it so they can resell it to you, so they then transfer the ownership to you because you paid them the price that you agreed on. Simple. Now you own it. With that ownership goes responsibility, goes all, and the right to do something else with it as long as the bank doesn't own part of it. So if you buy it outright, you can do what you want with it because you own it. If you decide, I don't know why you would, hey, I like this car, I'm going to drive it off a cliff. 
Or I'm going to do nothing and just let it sit here and rot. If you're the only owner, you have the right to do that. Somebody else comes along and starts driving off with your car, you'll get upset because it's your car and they're exercising rights of ownership and they don't own it because they didn't pay for it. You own it. It's called stealing. Something that belongs to someone else. And we have laws against that and we get upset if you see somebody, you've got your nice new car in your driveway, you know. You come out the first day to drive it to work and someone else is driving it down the street. Oh, that's too bad. I wonder why they did that. No, you're going to get upset. That's my car. Why? Because I paid for it. Therefore, I own it. Now, let's go back to what we're studying. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because He created them, He owns them. Let's look at some scriptures. There's many we could look at also, but I just want to... Let's look at some scriptures here. We saw in Genesis 14.9, he's the possessor of heaven and earth. Let's go to Psalm 24. One of my favorites. So God's the creator of everything. Ownership comes through creation. The Creator owns what He owned, what he created. Psalm 24, verse 1, 2. The earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, everything in it. The world and those, that's people now, who dwell therein. Now, what does that leave out? Nothing. Why does He... Why does the earth belong to the Lord? Why does its fullness belong to Him? Why does the world belong to Him and all those who dwell therein? Verse 2, For He has founded it, created it, upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Let's go to Psalm 89. The first principle of tithe is to train us in who God is. Second principle is to train us that God owns everything that He created. Psalm 89, verse 11. The heavens are yours, and the earth also is yours. Interesting. We talk about Mother Earth. Who's the father? Mother Earth. Mother Nature. The world's ideas of explaining things are usually founded in motherhood. You see very little about fatherhood in the world's teaching of explaining things. Mother Earth, Mother Nature, because mothers primarily are nurturing, caring, comforting. Father's authority. The world doesn't like authority. It wants nurturing. It wants It wants understanding. It doesn't want authority. It doesn't want ownership. It wants, I understand why you're doing this. All right, I don't want to get off on that sidetrack. Because we could do that. All right. The earth, the heavens are yours, talking to God, and the earth also is yours. The world in all its fullnesses For you have founded them. So the earth is his, and all that it consists of, the heavens are his, 
and all that it consists of, and every being that dwells in it is His because He created it all. So first, He's the creator of all. Secondly, He's the owner of all. Okay. Now go back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up on the story of creation now. We skip the verses in between because it's how God created the heavens, the earth, the sky, the lights, the darkness, and separated them. Dry land from what? From the from the uh, from, from the ocean. Um, he created grass and herbs and seeds and all kinds of other things. Light in the firmament. And let's go down now. And he created the beasts of the field. Now we're going to verse 26, his crowning creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image. If you go back and read through all the other parts of the creation, nowhere else does he say something's created in his image. This is the only creation he makes that's in his image. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created him in his own image, the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Now verse 23, 6 clearly says, God gave man dominion over the animals. We live in a society that's promoting man, or animals over man. Now, don't send me letters. I won't read them. <laughs> I love animals. I've had animals. I was raised in a household full of everything from armadillos to snakes. I mean, we, were, we had a menagerie in our house. I love animals in their place. But when we exalt the rights of animals over the rights of unborn children, something's wrong. The values of our system have become skewed. God gave man dominion. Now, dominion requires responsibility. Not to mistreat, to take care of and to provide for but he gave man dominion over this creation. Dominion does not mean ownership. It means responsibility and authority. If you take the course we have on spiritual authority, it will teach you this principle. Authority is merely a tool to help you carry out your responsibility. God will never give somebody authority unless he's first given them responsibility. So if you've been put in a position of authority, you need to understand what your responsibility is because that's why you were given the authority. And the responsibility determines the limits of your authority. If you want more on that, take our course on, under, on, on, on spiritual authority. All right. God created, verse 27, God created them in His image. He created them male and female. We won't go there right now. Created them, and God blessed them and said to them, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves. So he's now taken this man he's created and put him in an elevated position over all the other creation, over all the animals, over all the trees, over everything. He's put this man in this place and given him a, an elevated position and a responsibility. So he's responsible to tend it, to take care of it, and to multiply it to, to cause increase. That's his responsibility. Now let's go over to chapter 2. Well, before you do that, go to verse 29. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. 
So he's saying here, and I have provided what you need. I have. God says. I, the creator of this, the Most High, I have provided for you out of this thing you're serving. I have provided your needs. Now let's go over to chapter 2. This is all going to fit together in a few minutes. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man who He had formed. Notice God chose where He was going to live. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. And now He's going to name out of all these things He's created, all the animals, all the plants, all the trees... God's going to specifically identify two. I have to believe if God is pointing out of all this, He's saying, you are here to freely enjoy it. But there's two trees I want to call your attention to. First one. The tree of life also is in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's two trees he pointed out. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the tree of life, he's already alive. So what's he need a tree of life for? Well, we'll see that. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. From there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first was Pishon. It is one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. So there's gold. God's given them gold. Getting better, huh? And the gold of that land was good. It was pure gold. Bedellum and the onyx stone were there. The name of the second river is Kion, which is the one which grows around the whole land of Cush. That's down in Egypt. The land of the third river was Hedelka, which is the one that grows toward east, towards Assyria. The fourth is the Euphrates. Then God took the man and put him in the garden to tend it, which means to take care of it, and to keep it, which means to protect it. So God took this creation that He'd made, that God created, that God owned, and He took His man, whom He created and whom He owned, and He put him in this place to take care of it, to to prosper, to cause it to grow, and then He took him and put him in a special place to be able to enjoy and told him to tend it and protect it. Everything's great so far. Right? Verse 6, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now, this runs right in the face of what religion teaches about God. Because religion teaches God is has a whole bunch of things you can't do and very few things you can. But here we're seeing God said, I made this for you. I made this for you to not only take care of, but to freely enjoy. Enjoy this. Eden means place of delight. I'm commanding you. You can eat of anything in here. It's yours to enjoy to the fullest. Sounds good, doesn't it? There's gold there, there's onyx and all kinds of jewelry and stuff like that. That's good, ladies, isn't it? All right, just, there's, there's bling there, okay? Except it's the real stuff. It's pure, all right? Things to enjoy. Place of delight. Remember, God created it all. Remember, secondly, God owns it all. And this is the third thing. God's put him here as a steward of it all. All right. Verse 17. However, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now that in Hebrew literally says, in dying, you shall die. And then God goes on and 
creates the woman out of him. Now, what is there about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why would God say, look, you can enjoy all the rest of this, but there's one tree, one tree out of all of it you can't eat of. Notice what it is. It's the tree of the knowledge of something. And it's the knowledge of, the go- of good and the knowledge of evil. I believe that what God is saying here is I created you, I made you, I know you, I know your limits. And I did not... See, this is what's happening here, and this is what we're getting at. God's creating a boundary. You know what a boundary is? A boundary is a line that tells you where you end and your rights end and where somebody else's begins. That's why we have fences and boundary lines and properties. So I know where I can stop mowing and where my neighbor's responsible for mowing. I know where he needs to keep his dog and where he couldn't, shouldn't come. Because in fact, a few weeks, years ago, he got a nice lab, he got loose. And, you know, we're sitting on our back deck and all of a sudden, Fluffy or whatever his name is, comes up wiggling his tail, you know, <laughs> and I reached, because he has two dogs, one I wouldn't do this with. I reached down and patted him and I said, come with me. And we went back to the front door and I rang the doorbell. Listen to me, I said, your dog was in my yard. Listen, your dog belongs to you, it's your responsibility. Your dog got out of the area that he was entitled to be in, and he crossed a boundary line and ended up in my yard where not only didn't he belong, I didn't want him. Not that I don't like dogs, but he was big, knocking stuff over. And if he got loose, if he got loose, the other dog they have, I definitely don't want in our yard because he's mean. So I wanted the neighbor to understand, love your dog on your side of the fence. So boundaries are to protect us from things that we're not responsible for. A lot of you get all worked up over stuff you're not responsible for. Called minding your own business. (laughs) That's a more direct way to put it. But, you know, we use that term in terms of being nosy, but we also mind other people's business and we get worked up and upset about things that's really not our responsibility. Isn't that true, parents of grown kids? Oh. 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 We need to ask ourselves regularly, what is my responsibility? What responsibility has God given me here? Because God's the one that sets the boundaries. God set this boundary. This tree is a boundary. And boundaries are to protect us. See, we, growing up, as children, we tend to look at them as rules to limit us, and they limit my freedom. I can't do this, and I can't do that. But those rules are there to protect us from things we're not yet ready to handle. If those rules are put in place justly and rightly with the right motive. And God is always just, and God's motive is always right. So when God sets boundaries in our lives, they're for our protection because He knows we can't handle it on the other side of that fence. We may think we can, but He knows we can't. This boundary is the knowledge of good and evil. Why did man have to know good and evil if he simply obeyed God who does know good and evil? If they just did what he said, they wouldn't need to understand good and evil because God would have protected them from the knowledge of good and evil. 
And if you want to get a sense of what the knowledge of good and evil has done to man, read the newspaper any morning. Just look at what's going on in the world. I can't look at it anymore very much. I'll skim it to see what's basically going on, but I can't watch it for any length of time because I'll either get angry or if I watch it too long, I'll get afraid. There's no hope in there, very little hope if any. It's all negative. It's what we're doing to each other, all from the knowledge of good and evil. And basically God was saying, you can't handle that. Now over in chapter 3, let's turn quickly there because this is what Satan comes in to do. Oh boy, we've got to move on. Chapter 3, verse 5, Satan comes in and he's lying to the woman, of course, and he says, you know, God has told you that you shouldn't eat of that tree. Notice the place he goes to attack. Has God told you not to eat of that tree? And the woman says, yes, God's told us not to eat of the tree. But the tree in the midst of the gardens, God has said, you shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what he's tempting her to do is to cross the boundary and to take into her own mental judgment what she can handle and what she can't handle. She, he is tempting her to act like the owner and not the steward. The owner needs to understand everything about it and can do what the owner wants. But we've seen God did not put them in that garden as an owner. He put them in the garden as a steward. A steward doesn't own it They're responsible for it. And in the process can enjoy it because it's entrusted to them, but they've always got to remember they're not the owner, they're the steward. And this temptation is tempting her and him to exercise rights of ownership and step outside of the boundary of stewardship. Remember the principle of the tithe. The first part of it is God is the creator of all. Second thing is because the creator is the one that owns, therefore God owns it all. The third thing is God has entrusted it to man as a steward, not as an owner. All right. And in essence, what she is being tempted to do is what in the world today, or has been called, humanism. Whereas that man can govern himself, take care of himself, improve himself, promote himself and manage himself by the knowledge of good and evil on his own. Now, the knowledge of good and evil is out there. You can't pull it back in. But that's why it's so important, once we come to Christ, to do what we're learning on Wednesday night to do, to renew our mind, to go back and think like God thinks and not think the way the world thinks. Because the world doesn't own itself and is not doing too good a job of managing itself on its own. All right. So what we're getting is this. Why did God point that tree out to them? Why did God put a tree there anyway? Why did God just not put the tree there so they couldn't have been tempted by it? The purpose of that tree there was a boundary line to remind them that although they possessed all of this, although they were steward over all of this, although they could basically exercise the rights that God had given them, freely exercise them, that tree was a reminder that they did not own it. 
It was a reminder. Remember, we're being trained. It's training. So God empowers them. God authorizes them to exercise their own judgment. Adam named everything. And God took the names Adam gave. So when God delegates authority, He, you, you exer- you, he gives you what the, what the commissioning is, then it's up to you how you do it within His boundaries. Within those boundaries, you exercise your own judgment. God put this tree there to remind them every time they looked at that tree, wait a minute, there's something I can't do. With all this freedom and all this knowledge and all this ability, there's something I can't touch. Something that belongs to God that does not belong to me. Something that produces fruit that belongs to God, then that fruit I can't touch. Remember, it's training. Training is exposing you to something and saying, but you've got to do it this way or that way. Okay. You with me so far? All right. Okay. The purpose of the tree was a constant reminder. One, they didn't own anything. Number two, there were limits and boundaries to what they could do. Number three, they were not autonomous. They were not their own God. And four, they were stewards over everything that they had and owners of nothing. Now, what's the difference between a steward and an owner? An owner has the right to use whatever he owns for his own purposes. A steward can only exercise it for the purpose of the one that entrusted it to him. That's why Jesus said, I only come to do my Father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was a steward. Jesus was a steward over all of this, not an owner. All right. He was walking in stewardship, excuse me. The third thing, the second thing is an owner does not have to give an account, but a steward has to give an account for what he's done, what what was entrusted to him. Now, how does this relate to us? Because one of the principles of the tithe is the tithe for us is the same as the tree was for them. A tithe is the continuous reminder, continuous exercise to remind us that everything I have belongs to Him. Because our instinct is, God's God's going to take 10% from me? Oh, no. You get to hold on to 90% of what belongs to God. Remember in the kingdom of God? There's principles in the kingdom of God. And Satan has come in to take those principles and to pervert them. And he always perverts them in such a way so it revolves around me. Whereas in the kingdom of God, it revolves around God. In the kingdom of God, everything belongs to God. And he says, freely you may enjoy and freely eat, except for one thing you can't touch. In the kingdom of the world, hey, I got it, it's mine. God... I'll give you because I choose this. But I'm owner, so I can decide what I want to give you. That's an exercise of ownership, not stewardship. So when our attitude is, well, I don't want, you know, it's up to me what I give to God. That's exercising ownership. That's the mentality of ownership. And the tie, that's why people get so upset about it. That's why it's such an issue. Notice what Satan went to in the garden. Right away, he went to the one thing, boundary God said. Because he knew that that was to remind them and instill in them a a lesson that he had violated. And all he's ever trying to do is spread to us the same doctrines that he exercised. And remember how persuasive he is. He took one-third of the angels and convinced them to do the same thing. So the tithe, one of its purposes is to train us as a constant reminder. Every time we write that check, every time we we bring it to God, it's a reminder to me that this is God's, not mine. That everything I have is His. Even the breath in my lungs 
is his. It's a reminder because human nature, that Adamic nature in our flesh, is the pride of life that John talks about. I did this, and I have this, and I own this, and this is mine, me, mine, mine, I own. That's why James says, you know, you have not because you ask not, and when you ask, you ask them this because you're trying to spin it on yourself and on your pleasures. Not that we can't enjoy things, but it's around me, what I want. It's the thinking I have the right to exercise my dominion over it and acting as an owner, not as a steward. Okay, we've got to move on here. I want to go now to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want to show you an example here of where God was training His people in the same thing. He did it differently. Because He has them bring a tithe too, but this is different. Verse 1. Every commandment... Now what's happened here is the children of Israel have left Egypt. God brought them supernatural out of Egypt. The first generation that came out of Egypt comes to the borders of the promised land that God promised them. And when they see that there are challenges and difficulties there, they turn away and go back. Why? Because they would not learned the lesson that they, God had intended them to learn in the process of being through the wilderness. It was a training ground. And they didn't learn the lesson, so they missed the destiny that God had for them. Now we've got another generation. It's about 40 years later. This generation that was not born in Egypt, that was born in the wilderness. This generation is about to go into the promised land. Second try at this. And God has Moses rehearsing, going back over what he took their forefathers through and the lesson that they were supposed to learn. That's what this is about. Okay. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. Notice he didn't say own it. He said possess it. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you. It means train you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you and allowed you to go hungry now, don't worry about them. They didn't starve. And fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? So they got out there and there was no supermarket out there. There was no source of food and no source of water. So God supernaturally, listen to me, every day, they got up in the morning and there was a day's worth of Food, the day's worth of, 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 of manna, which means what is it on the ground, that they could then make into flour. If they tried to collect two days, the second day's rotted. Except on the night before, day before the Sabbath, because they couldn't go collect it on the Sabbath, then they could get two days and that second day didn't rot. God was proving something to them. He was proving to them, first of all, that He was their source and not they themselves or the ground. He was training them that they could trust Him. And look at what He says. The next part of this. He tells you what He was doing. That He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So He's saying, your source is not the food. Your source is every word that comes out of God's mouth. In other words... He's the Most High God. He's your source. He was training them to learn that everything they had came from Him. And He was their source. Now let's see why. Why was that so important? Go over to verse 11. Because he goes on and says, Your garments didn't wear out. You know, you didn't run out of anything. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His judgments and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herbs and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water but who 
brought water from out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good to you in the end. Then yet you will say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gained this wealth. That's the danger we all deal with. That's the pride of life. That's what Adam fell for. And it's still ingrained in our flesh. Look what I've done. Look at the church I made. Look at this work that I've done. Look at my ministry. Look at my things. My, mine, mine, my money. I don't want to give my money. I don't want to sow my seed. I don't want to give my time. I don't know whether I want to do that with mine. God said, I trained your forefathers so that when I poured my blessing out on them, those blessings would not pull them away from me because they would become lifted up with the same pride Lucifer had, saying, look what the work of my hands has produced. And I suggest to you, my brothers and sisters, that same pride is still in our flesh today, that tendency. And God knows our tendency. So just as He trained them, God has given to us, just as He gave a a tree to Adam. And and this is why you'll see if you go through the Old Testament, God had a number of different tithes. I think there were three of them. But one of the principles of the tithe is to regularly remind us God's the creator of all. God's the, God is the owner of all. We are stewards of what we have and own nothing. And the last principle is to learn to trust Him above all. And that's what I had to wrestle with. That first time I shared with you last week, when I wrote that first tithe check, my brain seized up, my hands trembled. And it came down to this. I've got to make a decision of my will that I'm going to trust God and do what He says to do. And that if I do what He says to do, He's going to take care of me. Amen. It's a step of faith that's big enough that means you can only do it if you're going to trust that He's going to take care of you. And when I took it, we took it. Thirty-some years ago, we've never looked back. And God has always blessed us and taken care of us, even through stupid decisions I made that got us financially in trouble. He's, I could go to Him with confidence. God, I messed up here. I didn't listen to good advice. I jumped in and did something I shouldn't have done here. But through it all, I've tithed. Through it all, by that tithe, I've trusted you. Say, I trust you, and I've put you first. Now you have to do what you've said in your word. You do. So what's behind the tithe? It's principles that God's training us in. That he's the, he is the creator of all. He's the owner of all. That we are stewards, not owners and that God wants us to learn to trust Him. And I'll read the last of this verse, and then we'll end here. Look at this. Verse 17. That you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. You, and then, because of how I trained you, you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant which he swore to your forefathers today. God wants to bless you. God wants to take care of you. But he knows the nature of man, that if he just pours out the lottery went on you, <laughs> and you have not trained yourself in this area, that as good as you think your intentions are, God knows us that eventually it will pull our heart away from Him. And imagine the heart of a father who blesses his child only to see that blessing that he gave them out of love 
pull them away. That's happened time after time in church. People come to church, they're believing God for a mate, they meet somebody, they get married, then they believe God for a child, God blesses them with a child, and the next thing you know, that mate and that child are too much to bring to church. God blesses somebody with a, a boat or something, and now that boat's more important to them on Sunday than the God who gave it to them. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. Or God, we believe God for children. God blesses us with children. And now Little League comes along. Well, my child needs to be at Little League so I can't come to church. Who gave the child to me and blessed the child, me with a child? And so I put the child, I put the child, the gift to God, God gave me above the God who blessed me. That is so ingrained in us. And one of the purposes of the tithe is to train us in each of these four things. We'll go on to another subject of this, not next week because Lafayette's here, but the week after. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now. We've asked you for understanding of why you do what you do. We thank you that your word gives us understanding. We pray now, Father, that the words that we've heard that your spirit has deposited in each of our hearts... And maybe it's something a little different in each one, Father, because you know what each one has needed to hear. That as that seed has been sown today, we pray, Father, for the Spirit of God to begin to develop that within our understanding. Begin to work with us in the areas of our life where you're trying to bring us to another level of trusting you, another level, Lord, of understanding who you've made us to be and what you've given us to do. We trust you to do that now, Father, as we prepare to go out into this world and back into our homes, into our families, that as you go with us, that you continue to teach us and work with us in these very important matters. In Jesus' name.